My freshman year of college, during finals week, I had one of those timed finals essays where you go to the professor's office and pick up the question, and then you have a couple hours to write your essay and turn it in. And I picked up the question, went back to my dorm, and could not figure out anything to say. And sat there kind of panicking like, oh my god, I have nothing to say about this. So I wrote an essay about I had nothing to say about the question. <laughs> and then argued that that was because it was the wrong question. Yeah, needless to say, <laughs> I did not do well on that final. I must confess, I have had somewhat the same experience in working on this sermon for this week. <laughs> Spending time with these readings and commentaries on them. Feeling like you don't have anything to say isn't really optimal if you're a preacher. It isn't that there aren't a lot of topics within these readings, and perhaps the problem is that there are too many. Jeremiah has the new covenant God will make with the people, a covenant that will not be written on stone tablets, but on our hearts. God will be our God and we will be God's people and God will remember our sin no more. What is not to love about that? Christ, of course, is the fulfillment of this covenant. Psalm 51, which we just read, is the famous psalm of lament. We read it every Ash Wednesday. I and many other clergy recite verse 11 privately as an acolyte ritually washes our hands just before we preside at the Eucharistic prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The gospel passage, taking place during the festival of Passover, signals that Christ's passion is near that it is almost Holy Week. The cross looms in the near distance. Jesus uses the image of a grain of wheat, saying the grain must die to bear fruit, just as he will. Otherwise, it remains a solitary grain. Martin Luther wrote, If you could understand a single grain of wheat, you would die of wonder. That is certainly true of Christ as the grain of wheat that bears fruit. There is an allusion here to the Eucharist and the bread, which is the fruit of the grain. The fruit of Christ is the church. The church is the body of Christ. The Eucharist, too, is the body of Christ. Church and Eucharist constitute each other. Of the Eucharistic bread, St. Augustine said, 
The mystery that you are lies there on the table. It is your own mystery that you receive. Be what you see and receive what you are. So there is a lot here in these readings. But I have to say, I haven't been able to figure out a whole sermon about them. And like my college professor reading my essay, you probably don't want to hear an entire sermon on how I can't figure out what to say. Am I right? Yeah. Now, I've matured a little bit since college. Not a lot, but a little bit. So I asked myself, what am I avoiding? What am I avoiding? In college, I was avoiding answering the question because I was afraid I didn't have a good answer. Better to have no answer than a bad answer. Better to say it was the wrong question than to show that I could not answer it well. As an aside, at our mini retreat yesterday, a parishioner who's an expert in anxiety and fear gave an amazing talk on anxiety and described this avoidance behavior perfectly. It is not uncommon in children and youth and adults with anxiety issues. She was describing me. But back to that sermon that I'm not giving. In my struggle to determine what to preach about, I asked, what am I avoiding? Then I reread the collect for today. The collect is the prayer we say at the beginning of the liturgy just before the readings. There is a collect for every Sunday and feast day in the church calendar. So while the readings for each Sunday change on a three-year cycle, the collect today is always the collect for the fifth Sunday of Lent. I want to invite you to say it with me. It's on page five of the bulletin. Let us pray. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I can certainly identify with the unruly wills and affections of sinners being one myself. I do desire what God promises. Amidst the craziness of the world, I pray that my heart is fixed where true joy is to be found. Although I have to say, it's hard. Then I realize that I get stuck at grant your people grace to love what you command. 
Do I really love what God commands? If I listed the things that I truly love in my life, God would definitely be on the list. But would what God commands be on the list? If Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant described in Jeremiah, then what he commands is to be written on my heart. And what Jesus says is this, those who love their life lose it. Whoever serves me must follow me. I got to say, I really love my life. And I don't just mean I love life. I mean, I love my life in the way that I think Jesus is saying leads to losing it. I am more selfish than I like to admit. Jesus is about to die on the cross for me and for you. And he commands us, follow me. I'd be lying if I said that doesn't give me some pause. Now, of course, much of the Gospels were written in a context in which followers of Christ could be physically persecuted. That's not really going to happen in Ross or pretty much anywhere in the U.S. There are parts of the world where today you can be killed for being a Christian. But someone saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas is not persecution. And I think anger about that says more about privilege than about persecution. It is too easy for me to gloss over this call to follow Christ because little in my daily life demands it of me. It's one of the challenges of affluent secularism, not being faced daily with living my faith. Now, to be clear, in the gospel passage, Jesus is critiquing a religious and political system that feasted on power instead of righteousness. And this call of Christ is there in our lives, and it is persistent. Those who love their life will lose it. Whoever serves me must follow me. Whenever I volunteer at the rotating emergency homeless shelter, or when I have visited very, very poor villages in Malawi, Africa, I am deeply grateful for those experiences. But I find myself thinking, thank God this isn't my life. And I think that is precisely where I have lost my life, where I have failed to follow Jesus because God is not the reason that I'm not homeless or don't live in one of the poorest villages in the world. I love my life more than what God commands. If I think God has favored me over a homeless man or a worker on a tea plantation making 50 cents a day 
doing backbreaking labor. God is not more present with me than with them. Indeed, these are the very people Jesus called his lambs and commanded his apostles to feed them. They are the very people that Jesus said in serving them, we are serving him. If I am truly honest, I have left those encounters at the homeless shelter and among the poor in Malawi with a nagging feeling that while their circumstances are dire and need transformation, many of them just seem more free than I feel. I mean free in a spiritual sense, free in the way Jesus offers to those who follow him. So I think that's the reason why I couldn't figure out what I wanted to preach on this morning. It's because I love my life so much that deep down I'm afraid of being free.